Welcome back, everybody. This is the Shock Talk Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Jacob O'Connor. Today, I'm joined with my co-host, John Peterson. Hey, what's up, guys? And then we have Michael Staub with us as well. How you doing, Michael? Tired, but uh, glad to be here in person. I think this is a little more personable than uh, doing it through, you know, a Skype recording, right? Right. right. Yeah, yeah. That, that was one of the more interesting podcasts that we've done, um, just because of the format. Did Where are you normally from? Like, where do you currently res- reside at? Um, well, we're uh, we're transiting from kind of the Dulles, Virginia area okay. to, to Denver, Colorado. That's our that's our final home stop. Oh wow, Th- that's exciting. Um, I mean, I'm personally looking forward to going to the uh, Broncos Chiefs game this year with <laughs> there you Russell go. Wilson and Pat going at. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't wait. It, did you drive into Wichita? You fly in? We drove in. Wow. It's been a is that today. Hours. Twenty hours. Wow. wow. Over over two days. Yeah, I understand why you're tired. <laughs> <laughs> so you're moving to Denver, correct? We're moving to Denver. Yep. Big skier? Yes. I'm so looking forward to it. Because when I when I lived in LA, we had to drive five hours north to Mammoth yep. to get any good powder. There mm-hmm. was Big Bear, but that was all artificial powder and it was is not as good. So you know, drive five hours up through through all these windy roads up in the mountains to get up to Mammoth and uh where our house is being built, it's 45 minutes to the mountains. Yeah. I'm still looking forward to it. We're going to miss the powder this year because um, everything's warming up, but we'll, we'll definitely hit it in the, in the fall. Well, super, super cool. Congratulations on the new house that you're building. Enjoy Denver. It's a beautiful area. John, I love going there. Um, the first time we went to Denver was on our house hunting trip six wow. weeks ago. Oh, cool. Wow. We only ever passed through the airport and that, then we're like, okay, we have four days to find a house. And we get in there and we can't find anything because houses are ridiculously expensive and the market's super hot right now. Can't find anything. On our last day, 20 minutes before we had to go to the airport, we went to a, uh, a home built site that was, you know, building new homes and we found it. Wow. Funny how that works sometimes. Yeah, seriously. We, literally, we, we, uh, we talked with the, the company down there. We signed the contract and then we hit the road and went to the airport and went home. Yeah. And for everyone that's listening, if you want to bring up to speed, Michael, I think you've had a big kind of life change here come up, come up. Why are you moving to Denver? Um, we're relocating because uh, I took a job with uh, Blue Origin. That's Jeff Bezos' uh, privately owned space company. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. We're doing uh, some really cool stuff. I'm sure we're going to get to it. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a great change from working on the government side of things where mm-hmm. things are very political and they take decades to develop. And when you go to commercial side, it's pretty much, you know, Jeff, or if you work at SpaceX, Elon basically says, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Money is not an issue. Go do it. Yep. And that's, that's what we do. Well, and before we dive too deep into that, cause I'm utterly fascinated whenever we get there, I want to bring the audience up to speed in case they didn't go back and listen to our previous episodes. Can you kind of give us a, a good visual and a good background of your time at Wichita State and how that led and transitioned into your first job, which I'll let you get into, and then led and transitioned into your current job with Blue Origin. Yeah. So life is sometimes funny and it's all about luck. So I, I grew up here in Wichita. I went to Wichita State, was a bachelor's of science in aerospace engineering, graduated 2013. I did some internships at NASA and I thought I was going to get a job at NASA back in uh, 2012, 2013. Well, that turned out to be when the government went on a hiring freeze. So no jobs available. Um, I think of the cadre of 10 
10 co-op students at the, at the NASA now Armstrong flight research center. I, it was the Dryden flight research center when I was there. That's where they Edwards air force base. They do all flight testing of all the new X planes and stuff. Um, they only, only had one slot for 10 co-op students and I didn't get it. So I, I graduated and I'm like, okay, now I, now I have to find a job because right. I, I wasn't planning on going to grad school yet. I needed engineering is really hard. I needed a break. Um, after six years, I just needed a, a gap in there. So um, I ended up going to St. Louis, working as a flight test engineer out of Boeing um, on some of their F-15s and the, the PA Poseidon, which is the Navy submarine hunter and killer. Um, very cool. Yeah, very cool stuff. Very cool. Um, spent a year there, uh, decided, you know, after a couple months, you know, this is just going to be a, you know, just a gap for a year before I go to grad school, was applying to grad schools in the fall. Uh, went to Georgia Tech uh, in the fall of 2014. So, you know, I've been out of school for quite a while now, um, but did my master's uh, down at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Um, everything about Atlanta is true. It is hot, it is muggy, <laughs> um, but I didn't get to enjoy much of the environment because it's grad school and we were always in the lab doing work. But I was there for, for about 15 months, graduated in December of 2015 and then went off to the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory flying spacecraft and being a flight director for Mars rovers and wow eventually went off to other stuff developing spacecraft and now I now I work on you know lunar lunar stuff for for Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos you know I really appreciate the usage of the word stuff because I think if you went into technical terms John I would sit here and just be completely lost <laughs> <laughs> well there's you know, there's the key of there's there's the, all the technical aspect of it, but there's also a lot of the a lot of the programs we're working on are, are not public yet, so mm. we can't technically say what they are. I can just say it's lunar stuff. Uh, the 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 goal of Blue Origin is to see millions of people living and working in space. The moon and that environment around the moon is one of the areas we're targeting within the next you know decade. We want to basically create an environment where there is basically fully sustainable lunar presence on the surface of the moon. And we're working on the the concepts that are going to make that happen. So I have a yeah, I have a question, and John and I have talked about this. This may be a stupid question, but I need to ask it because we have the right person in the room. Who, like, you think of real estate, and you talk about wanting to have presence on the moon. Who technically has the rights to that? Can the U.S. go up there and colonize a certain portion of it? How are we splitting up the landscape of the moon? No one has the right to occupy or claim territory over any part of space. Wow. And that's part of the Outer Space Treaty of 1957 or 58. I'll probably, I'll have to look up the number, but um, the Outer Space Treaty of, of the 1957 or 58 basically says that anything beyond Earth is not the territorial right of any country. So that seems interesting as Elon's trying to colonize Mars. I mean, what? I mean, there's some interesting legal pieces behind that. No one ever thought we would ever colonize Mars. Right. So no one ever thought, oh, we have to talk about this. But the Outer Space Treaty, which is, you know, treaties are, are kind of these legal things on an international stage that are, we all agree to do this, but there is no legal right to enforce it. It's just, you know, everyone's goodwill says we're not going to colonize, we're not going to claim this territory for any country or any, any individual company. Um, but yeah, we're, we'll start getting into those kind of legal questions if, you know, are there parts of the moon that that a company says this is this is our, you know, this is the place where our where Blue Origin or SpaceX or you know the Russians and the Chinese are talking about having their own you know lunar base? Technically, they can't own that because the Outer Space Treaty says they can't. But you know, again, it's a treaty; can't legally be enforced. Right. 
Well, I was going to ask you, what is your take on this treaty? You think it's outdated, time to be updated, and that the U.S. should have a presence there? What are your thoughts? I mean, the U.S. was a signer of the treaty. So, uh, you know, this came out of the space age and the Cold War, you know, as we're as the Soviets and the U.S. are, are developing ICBMs and all these things. We said, you know, space is is off limits, which is kind of been nice to see with with how the crews on the International Space Station have been treating things. It is spaces. Space is off limits. It's a place where politics can exist. You know, everybody has to work together to survive on the space station. It's still very dangerous to go, <laughs> you know, um, but in, you know, I, I, you know, treaties probably need to be updated. I mean, it's been a couple decades since then. Um, and as, you know, commercial companies begin to start taking more, more of a leading role in space exploration, that is probably something we need, definitely need to address. Because in the, in the 60s, no one ever thought that a private company would ever build their own space company. There was no profit to be right. made in going to the moon. There's no profit in doing that in the sixties, it was just all national pride. And for the United States, it was right. just, you know, showing the Soviets that we're better. That, <laughs> that was it. I mean, there were other reasons for doing that, but you know, no one ever thought that a commercial private company would ever, would ever have the intention to go to the moon and establish a, a base there permanently to do business and, and in situ research utilization and all these other things that, that, you know, Blue Origin and other companies are talking about doing on the moon. You know, one ever thought that is that a commercial company would ever do that. So when we went to the moon, I believe there's a legendary video of a pla- of a flag being planted. Did that violate the treaty or did they take the flag back with them or versus the gray area? It's 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 there. Still there hasn't left. Um you know, you could claim that it was it was meant there to be as a sort of uh you know a, a peaceful thing to show. Oh, we came here, you know, for all for all humanity. We're not claiming territory over this. And, but I mean there was national pride associated. Right. You know, we have American boots on the moon. An American flag planted on the moon, and we're the only country that has a, a flag planted on the moon. Yeah, I was going to say, is it like a dog marking its territory? Or time another country goes up, they're going to take the U.S. flag and put their flag down. And no, see, uh, part of that treaty, or at least I think an amendment to that treaty, is any landing site on the moon is considered an historical site. It cannot be touched. It cannot be interfered with. Actually, when we were going through some of the, some of the new HLS, the lunar lander developments uh, for NASA, you know, last year, um, one of the requirements they told us is, you know, we have to ensure that any of our pieces that were flying to the moon cannot impact any of those historical sites. Interesting. Yeah. We have to go even to that level. We have to prove out that, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to smack into, you know, the Apollo 11 landing site because that's considered a, a national historical site. Um, not just for the United States, for the entire world. And, and you kind of mentioned it before, but what would be the purpose of us like colonizing the moon? Is it kind of like a, a spot to go other places? Like you go from the moon to Mars? Is it, is it further exploration or is it just kind of to have that? Well, so you have different, you have different like trains of thought of why, why go to the moon? Some, some folks will say that we go to the moon so that we can learn how to live off the land. I mean, that's, that's kind of the take that I have. Um, a lot of engineers have that same take is if you're going to learn how to live on Mars, you need to first learn how to actually live off of the resources of, of the place you're living. The moon has, you know, a lunar regolith. You can, you can bring water out of the, out of the regolith. You can, you know, use the materials for, for construction, for like building concrete and, and for, um, you know, for building a lunar base, um, you just kind of can learn how, how do I live off of the land? And the moon's only a two and a half day trip away. Mars is eight months and you can only get there 
three weeks out of the, uh, during a three week launch period every 26 months. So it's a lot easier to learn how to live off the land of the moon right. before you decide, hey, we're going to go now off to, to Mars. You can test those, those ideas. You can test those theories. And oh, hey, by the way, we don't have to deal with the problems of things like radiation and we can't supply enough food or enough air for the crew before you know, they waste away. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah it really, really is. Cool. I mean, I think Artemis with NASA, their their goal is, you know, we want to establish this footprint back on the moon again. We want to prove that we can do self-sustaining operations and the crews can learn how to live on their own when they go to Mars and it's an eight month trip. And then they're basically on the surface for six to 12 months and, you know, they're on their own. There's a 26 minute light time, light time delay from Earth to Mars. And, you know, they have to learn how to basically survive on their own if we can kind of develop those technologies when we go to the moon and test them there that's great before we decide, Hey, we're going to send, you know, a crew of six people out to Mars and, you know, it's a two and a half year mission and they're on their own. Right. And it's unfathomable to think it's an eight month trip. Like that's just incomprehensible. What sort of advances in technology need to be made for that? Like where are, where are communications at from radio standpoint, from a fuel standpoint, from food, water, like where do we need to get to make something like that even feasible? So communications, we can't do anything about communications are limited by the speed of light. And we can't go any faster than that. Um, I'm sure there's some sci-fi folks talking about like quantum computing and all these things, but you know, we <laughs> engineers, we live with, you know, what we have right now, which is the EM spectrum and radio waves travel faster than the speed of light. So, you know, we can't, we can't fix the light time delay. We can't fix the amount of data we can send. NASA has been testing technology like laser communications, where you can, you can put more energy onto, onto a laser and you can send more data. Um, but you can't change the, the light time delay. It's, it's the same. Um, in terms of like getting there faster, we have been talking about technologies to try and, and shorten the distance, things like um, electric propulsion. It has, um, you know, you don't get as much thrust out of it like a chemical rocket, but you do get higher efficiency. So you can shorten the, the, the trip time, you know, instead of eight months with electric propulsion, maybe it's six months. You know, it's still a long distance, but there are other texts that that folks have been working on over the years that that involve like plasma, uh, like plasma engines or even nuclear propulsion. Um, that's really interesting concept because, you know, people don't like it when we're launching nuclear payloads into orbit because that technically also does violate the Outer Space Treaty. But as long as it's not used as a weapon, it's perfectly fine. But, you know, folks have been looking at trying to come up with different propulsion technologies so it doesn't take as long. If you were to go on a nuclear, you know, propulsion system, you could cut the trip time down to four weeks, wow. two to four weeks. Wow. It's all about the efficiency and the, and the thrust. A, a nuclear rocket kind of gives you the, the, the benefit of it has high thrust so you can move mass more efficiency, but it also has the, uh, the higher, what we call specific impulse, which is a measure of the efficiency of the rocket. And it also has kind of a much higher efficiency compared to a chemical rocket. So you kind of take a little bit, a little bit of the best of both worlds. The problem is you have a nuclear payload sitting behind your crew. And then you have to talk about things like radiation effects and, you know, what happens if that nuclear rocket decides to go boom, you know, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah the little things like that. So those are the things, you know, you kind of little have things. to work through. Yeah. Was... What does what electrical thrust in space look like? Um, so we basically take an ionized gas like xenon. So xenon has, you know, these, these, uh, outer shell has these extra electrons. Mm -hmm. and, and what the, what the system basically does is it sheds some of the electrons off 
And what it does is it uses a, a, a field of magnets and it basically just accelerates these protons and electrons out of the back. And it gives you a very, very, very small thrust because you're, you're basically throwing, you know, protons, which don't weigh a lot out the back, but they're going nearly the speed of light. So you get really, really, really high efficiency, high ISP. You just don't get a lot of thrust, but you can basically do what we call continuous burns. We just, rather than with a chemical rocket, we burn the engine for 10, 15 minutes. And then we basically coast, which is what we do today. That's why it takes eight months. Mm. You do this high, uh, high, high thrust, uh, high energy burn at earth. And you basically just coast all the way up to Mars with an electric propulsion system. We can fire the engine the entire time we go to Mars. And that's how we get the, that's how we shorten the distance or that's how we shorten the time between Earth and Mars. Interesting. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah. And as an engineer, I'm, I can tell you think about this in a way of like, this is feasible. This is how you should do it. Do you ever watch like Guardians of the Galaxy and Star Wars and look at their space travel and their solutions and think, no, that's unlikely. That's not realistic. Like, do you enjoy those movies from the standpoint or is it just like painful to watch? I mean, you'd be surprised the number of ideas we take from sci-fi. That's what I was hoping you'd say. Yeah, we do. We, t- we take a lot of inspiration from it. I mean, it may come in a different form, but mm-hmm. we do take inspiration from like uh, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Star Wars, Star Trek. I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those concepts that, oh, were considered sci-fi in the 60s, you know, people have proven out that, oh, hey, we can actually do that. Wow, that is crazy. And we do use them in space flight. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, things like uh, you know, oh, the the handheld communicators that you know they used on Star Trek—that's basically cell phones. Yep. And those were developed out of the space race. Wow. Wow, that is wild. Okay, now back to pivoting towards, you know, your job as an engineer. You worked for NASA, and then you decided to move over to Blue Origin. How does your role vary from working at Blue Origin than it did working with NASA? Um. So the 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 primary difference is that. The missions that we work on at NASA are are funded directly from Congress. So Congress says this is these are the programs you have funding allocated for to work on, and uh, these are the missions that you are allowed to you know basically operate or develop. With a company like Blue Origin, we can choose to bid on NASA proposals. I mean, NASA had a had a human landing system proposal out last year that they awarded to SpaceX. We we did bid on that. Um, but we also don't necessarily need to bid on those. We can pretty much do whatever we want. I mean, there's an advantage when you have one of the richest men in the world funding mm-hmm. your company. You know, he basically says, this is what I want you to do. And we can go off and do that. And there's no regulation from, from NASA or the government that says we can't do that because we're a, we're a privately owned company. Right. As long as we fit within the bounds of, of, um, what we are allowed from a regulatory perspective to do, we can basically do what we want. So what does your day-to-day look like then? Just curious. Um, right now, it's a lot of, so we, we, we do a lot of combinations of like uh, proposal work and architecture development. So a lot of our stuff is, you know, it's, I, I work in what's called the Advanced Development Programs Business Unit. So we're kind of the think tank for, for Blue. We come up with a lot of the really kind of sort of out there concepts <laughs> Um, the stuff that's like, you know, sci-fi a little bit. So you are required to watch movies on the job for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we do, you know, we do proposal work and then we're also, you know, trying to implement um, these programs. So I, I work in a, in a, a program called Lunar Permanence and within Lunar Permanence is a lot of different programs with the intent of trying to create a sustainable presence on the moon. How we do that, the pieces uh, related to those 
we can't talk about because it's not public, but there are pieces and elements from when Blue Origin was doing its, its HLS program um, that are components of that larger lunar permanence concept of how do we create sustainable presence on the moon. So we're kind of con- kind of a combination of we're doing proposal work, we're doing architecture for for, for you know these these new concepts we're going to work on later, but we're also doing the implementation part of figuring out how do we take that really that really you know high level concept and turn it into a working program that we're going to go fly. It sounds like it doesn't get very boring because you're always like it's literally the question is what if and what can we do and then how do we actually do that? Oh, it's it's not boring. Um, we're very small still, we're trying to hire like crazy, um, but very small, lots of projects, lots of little things to do. It's never, it's never boring. There's always something interesting that we're working on. And the fact that kind of everything we're working on is from the ground up to begin with, we have no, we have no basis for any of the things we're doing. We're basically starting from what we call a a, a white, uh, a clean slate. We have a, you know, an empty, uh, a clean whiteboard, and we're going to go out and figure out how to make that thing happen. And that's, that's what makes it really, that's, I mean, that's, that's what an engineer lives for is starting from literal scratch. Nothing there, this architecture is not defined. We're just going to go in and we're going to say, okay, this is what it's going to be. And then we're going to go implement it. And oh, by the way, we're going to do that in two to three years. Then we're going to go fly something and then we're going to come back and we're going to do it again in two to three years. Well, not only the creative leeway and the plan of implementation, but also being well-funded. I feel like that's an engineer's dream is, Hey, here's the whiteboard. Here's the marker, whatever you want, by the way, we'll fund it for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the limitations, we're like any company, we have to show that we're making progress. But yeah, when it's, when we're not limited to, you know, NASA says, this is how much money you get. And if you go over, you will not get any more money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the constraints of, you know, the budgets may change from year to year. Oh, hey, we're going to take that money away from you because this program had a, had a problem and they need more money to go fly. So, you know, we don't have those same restrictions. Okay. Yep. And then I would assume that you are, but are you interested in commercial spaceflight? Like the next couple of years, are you hoping that Jeff comes in and grabs your team and says, all right, let's go? I mean, I've, I've been pushing internally for, for us to have our own like company astronaut core that is simply there for, we're kind of like the flight representative for the company that flies the spacecraft. I and mean, we built it. Mm-hmm. We know how to fly it because we built it. Right. We did all the testing. So, you know, if we have, you know, a, a group of, you know, five or six you know, civilians that want to go to the moon or want to go up into a space station, you know, we would, we, you know, you have someone in the company that knows how the spacecraft works and goes up there and just is there to kind of keep the, you know, the, the tourists from breaking anything, but also there, you know, it's kind of like, Oh, I understand how the system works. So, you know, if, you know, if something breaks and, you know, you got someone that comes by, it's like, Oh, Hey, this thing isn't working. It's like, Oh, I, I got you. I, I, I built that. I know how to fix it. Yeah. Michael's like, Hey John, here's the company lease. Let's go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting you brought that up because we have um, one of our own blue origin engineers that's flying on the new shepherd flight. Oh, wow. On, on Thursday. Awesome. Uh, he's been with the company for 15 years and uh, you know, one of the seats opened up and the, and you know, blue is like, Hey, this guy was the architect for this entire program. He should get to experience it. So, you know, he, completely, you know, uh, you know, an incentive package for him is he gets to fly space. I that mean, so I think cool. that's, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it that absolutely is. Awesome. is. That is really cool. So he's gonna, he's gonna fly on Thursday and then he's, uh, you know, he's gonna go back to work in the afternoon. <laughs> you know, that's gotta be pretty cool. <laughs> Does he have to like train for that? Like, I feel like we would see astronauts that are doing these special like physical training and meal prep or whatever. What's that look like in commercial space flight? For New Shepard, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty laid back. 
we uh, down in Van Horn, Texas, which is where the origin launches out of. It's it's primarily it's it's very simple how the system works. It's more of when you're sitting in here, what are the things you need to be aware of? Where when are the times you're allowed to be out of your seat? When you need to be back in your seat? Mm. You know what the calls are going to look like, just so that there's you know that the people that fly on board they understand what the safety is. That's that's our most important. Most important feature of any of our products is is safety. We want to make sure that the that the product is as as safe as as we can make it for crews, whether that's going to be government astronauts who are more, you know, trained and spend all their time learning to fly missions, or if it's a civilian, we pull off of the street, you know, they get two days worth of training and then go fly. Wow, that is so cool. That is that is very cool. Um, just at your position right now, are you? in an office with your team or is it all remote? We're still remote. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think like most companies we're, we're talking about, you know, how we're going to come back. Um, but in two years, I mean, we've figured out how to build spacecraft sitting from home. I mean, that's, you know, everyone talked about, Oh, you know, why don't we go to a, you know, a semi sort of work from home format? Cause you know, we don't have to rent out office space and all these other things that, you know, companies always talk about is, oh, they have too much overhead with office space. And we figured out we could build spacecraft from home. I mean, it's, it's pretty neat. I think yeah. we'll probably, you know, we'll probably stick with, you know, a semi, you know, kind of a hybrid. We'll go into the office a couple of days a week and we'll work from home the rest of the time. Yeah. I think that's what most companies are kind of moving to. I think I saw Google's got like two days back in the office and a lot of companies are moving that direction. I mean, I think, I think it works really well when, especially if you live long way away from, from work, you know, right. Oh, I only have to commute in two days a week. I think that's great. And it gives you more of the flexibility to, you know, to kind of move your schedule around as you need to. Absolutely. Definitely. What is, what does the company company culture look like at blue origin? Well, in your own words, blue is the best place I've ever worked. It's, it's the kind, I mean, it's, it's like an engineer's dream. Everybody comes in and everyone has the same goal and that is to put people back on the moon. And, you know, we're all, we're, you know, we're, we're all kids when we saw the space shuttle, um, we saw the ISS being built, you know, we're like, this is the stuff we want to work on. And you're basically just in a room full of the same people that are as inspired to do the same thing as you are, which is to see us get back to the moon. And there's, you know, the incentive of the, the goals of, you know, trying to be the first to do that, trying to make, you know, prove out that our system is, is as safe and reliable as possible. Also, you know, there's a little bit of incentive, you know, to beat some of our rivals in the industry, right, right. you know, there, it's just, there's a lot of drive and motivation to, to do, um, to be there first and to do it right. But, you know, we never sacrifice, you know, our schedule for safety. And the difference I think between us and some of our other industry rivals is that we do put emphasis on doing the correct engineering before we go fly, we want to make sure that we follow the correct engineering process. We got to be fast with it, but we make sure that we do our good engineering judgment. We do good engineering analysis before we decide to go fly. Wow. That is, that is awesome. So I'm curious, and you may not know but much about it, but I'm curious, what, how involved is Jeff Bezos in this? I think he has a mechanical engineering degree that's his background, but I imagine he's a busy man. And quite frankly, he doesn't have to work if he doesn't want to. What's his involvement look like? Um, I'm trying to think of what I can say here. Um, I think he's been, I mean, uh, we think that 
when he retired or stepped down from Amazon that he wanted to get more involved in blue. Mm-hmm. And I think some folks within the company have noticed that he's, he is around more. He's a little bit more involved than he was. Um, but yeah, Jeff, um, I, I think Jeff is, has kind of got a little bit more of a inclination to, to want to see blue succeed. I think after HLS that the HLS award back, uh, in April of last year, I think that kind of, you know, incentivized him, you know, to be a little bit more involved in the company, but, um, you know, we've got good leadership throughout the company that, you know, we kind of understand, we know what Jeff's vision is. We know what his, his priorities are, and we, we can go execute that with, you know, without him being, you know, intimately involved with what we do. Right. Awesome. Well, John, do you have any other questions or else I've got a couple more as we wrap up? I don't think so. This has been so interesting though. Yeah. It's been mm-hmm. awesome. It really has. Um, Michael, the, the last question that I really want to ask you, and then if you have anything else you'd like to share, feel free to, but, you know, looking back, you mentioned that life is interesting, this combination of luck and opportunity. Um, looking back at that journey from back when you were at Wichita State, what advice would you offer to that younger version of yourself if you could go back and say something? Um, don't ever let an opportunity pass by. Um, when I, I was not actively looking to go to Blue. Blue Origin reached out to me. And this is kind of a combination of, you know, my wife and I had just bought a house a year and a half prior in Virginia. We didn't want to move. Um, these guys reached out to me and they made us an, a, a killer offer, something we just couldn't turn down. The work was, is amazing. I mean, I would, I would, I probably will never leave Blue Origin. It's, <laughs> it's such a cool place. I mean, you know, we've got the next decade we're doing lunar stuff and then who knows what's, what's beyond that. I'm sure we have, uh, folks in the company that are already thinking about what's, what's next once lunar permanence is, you know, sustainable. And it's a thing, you know, where we go beyond that. Um, There's never going to be any shortage of of cool things, I think going out of blue origin, but you know, the, the, I came into the company on a, you know, a cold call from a, from a manager that said, Hey, I need an engineer who specifically does the very thing that you're specialized in. And, you know, I just decided I, I get, you know, I get recruiter calls all the time and I'm like, you know what? I just, I just don't want to deal with that. Cause you know, we, we, we've been at, we've been to Virginia for, for a year and a half for like, you know, we just don't want to move. And, you know, I just decided, I was like, you know what, I'll just, I'll just listen and see what he has to say. And, you know, two months later we accepted the offer cause it was, it was a killer offer. And we're like, you know, we're, we're never going to get anything like this you know, really from any other company and we're never going to get to do, I'm never going to get to do something I think as fulfilling as trying to return humans back to the moon. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's crazy, but sometimes, you know, just a random opportunity just pops up, pops in your email and you're like, Oh, Hey, let's, let's listen and, and, you know, see what happens. You know, that's, that's kind of how I went to, to Boeing and then went to Georgia tech and then went out to LA to, to NASA and then, you know, went out to Virginia for, for Northrop and then, you know, move over to Denver for, for Blue Origin. It just kind of happens that way. That's incredible. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.